And you may be seated. Tell you what, it is really good to see all of you here this morning. If you want to find your Bibles and turn to the book of Ephesians, if you're new to fellowship, uh, one of the things we do is we take a book of the Bible and we walk through it passage by passage. We're not glossing over things, just hitting a few highlights. We really want to know what has God revealed in the Word. And we are presently going through the book of Ephesians. We're in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. I'd like to take you back in time, June 12th, 1987, on a hot summer day in Berlin, Germany. The American president, Ronald Reagan, stood up and gave a speech, and his words have become renowned. He addressed specifically his Soviet counterpart, the general secretary, Mikhail Gorbachev, and in his speech, he uttered these words to Mr. Gorbachev. If you seek peace... If you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. When he uttered these words, I mean, even the people on stage were like looking because they were completely caught by surprise. To think that this great wall in Berlin that separated East and West Berlin would, would come down was unthinkable. It had been constructed in 1961. It was 12 feet tall, concrete, stone, barbed wire. It was this great physical barrier between the East and the West. It wasn't, though, just a physical barrier. It was a philosophical barrier. On one hand, you have the, the oppression of socialism. In full display, I mean, there was a significant difference when you looked at East Germany. On the other hand, you had the flourishing of a free world, democracy. You had all of this in West Germany. And when Reagan uttered those words, they felt like this was, this was an, an impossibility. This was an impenetrable barrier because the tensions between the East and the West were so strong that it was almost like at different times we were on the brink of a Cold War absolutely erupting into a nuclear one. And yet, despite the, the, the people of the world thinking this could never happen, the unthinkable took place two years later when Mikhail Gorbachev told his soldiers, the sentries that lined the wall, to stand down and the people on both sides of the wall picked up picks and jackhammers, and they started tearing down this wall. And a watching world took us all in. Every TV station was honed in and focused on this. When I was in college, this took place because on November 9th, 1989, I walked into my room. My roommate was a wrestler from Germany and spent his high school years there. And he's standing in front of this TV, and he's like, whoa, Grant, come here, look at this. I can't believe it. He just was in utter shock. No one would think that that wall would come down, and yet it did. And yet, as great as the fall of the Berlin Wall is, it pales in comparison to the epical event that took place 2,000 years ago, a wall that had created a barrier between humanity, great division, and in some cases fostered great hatred and hostility It came down 2,000 years ago in the person of Jesus Christ. And I want you to know 
that despite this most significant event in all of human history, even today, we have great hostility that exists around the world. We have racism, division, hatred, places where progress is made. You've got other leaders that are literally just creating all sorts of division, tearing it up. Social media fuels a fire of animosity, enmity, strife, division, vitriol. And oftentimes you think, well, there's progress being made. On the other hand, you have seemingly tensions and cities attempted even to be burned down. And yet, God has addressed the issue. And you're saying, well, wait a second. How does God bring unity to the great diversity and disunity that exists among people? How does God do it? The answer, the amazing answer, is Ephesians chapter 2. I tell you, the answer to the question of racial reconciliation, all this massive diversity and disunity that is taking place in our world, if the world really wants the answer, you really want racial reconciliation? I'm saying more than just lip service. I want you to know where it's found is described in detail in Ephesians chapter 2. And so as we've been kind of walking through this book of Ephesians, remember what we, we saw in Ephesians chapter 2? He talks about, in verses 1 through 3, the reality of life apart from Christ. What does it look like to live in the domain of darkness? Well, he actually explains it. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and I'm just going to highlight this. We've already covered it. But we were dead in our trespasses and sins, spiritually dead, captured by trespasses, sins. We were dominated by the world and Satan, even though we may not even know that the enemy of our souls dominated our life, we operated in such a way that the world's influence, its values, what it aspires to, dominated our thinking. It became our aspirations. And furthermore, we were disobedient to the will of God. In some cases, people know the actual will of God. They've actually read the Bible, and they're like, you know what? I think I'm going to do it the other way. I'm going to do it my way. On the other hand, there are folks that just, I don't know, and I don't care. And furthermore, they are driven by self-centered desires. I want you to know that life apart from Christ in my life, I can tell you who I thought was on the throne of my life. And it wasn't God. It was me. What I want, how I want it, right? Can you relate? I'll tell you what, that's life apart from God. Self-centeredness. And furthermore, you are destined for wrath. This is life apart from God and it all stems of the evil that exists in the human heart, the depth of depravity in the lives of people. And so when you look at the great evils in our world, like racism, slavery, all sorts of crime, enmity, hostility, strife, the indignities that have been perpetrated on all sorts of people, whether it be in the name of religion or economics or some sort of social order that is being imposed, I want you to know that evil all comes from the wickedness that resides in the human heart. Now, what's actually happening in society right now is there are some folks are saying, well, I don't know about that. Really, the problem are the institutions. They need to be sh totally shut down, torn down, and maybe we'll start over, but we're going sh to shred this. We're going to shred every institution. God says, that's 
not at the heart of the problem. The heart of the problem is the human heart. And God, in his grace, he addresses the world's greatest problem, sin. And he does so through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And like we saw a few weeks ago in Ephesians chapter 2, you have these great words that everyone should memorize because this is the hope of the world. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. We are saved by God's grace, grace alone, by faith alone in Jesus Christ. There's not religious performance. It's not your good behavior. It's not even your bad behavior. It's God accomplishing his work through his son. And that work is meant to continue in the lives who receive grace, who trust Christ. And you see that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, when he says this, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So just like we see in Ephesians chapter 1 that salvation is rooted in eternity past, so is it the good works that God intends to manifest through his people. That word workmanship, poema, is a word that could be translated handiwork or even masterpiece. God intends to put his character on display through his people as they manifest the behavior, the good works that come from relationship with Jesus Christ. And what is the very first good work that God intends to demonstrate through his people? Does anybody know? I'll tell you, one word, reconciliation. The very first good work that is outlined right after verse 10 begins in verse 11, and it's reconciliation. And he starts with, just like he begins Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 then, he again goes back to our former condition. It was one of separation. And he specifically is addressing the Gentiles, the non-Jews. So pick it up, verse 11, he says, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Our former condition was separation. And it was manifested, first of all, in social alienation. So as Gentiles, uh, he's saying, listen, I want you to remember your former condition. He wants us to remember not so that like, well, I want you to just be wallowing in guilt or sorrow or grief or self-hatred, but rather to remember the greatness of God's grace in your life. He says, remember what God has done. He's referring to the Gentiles. These are the non-Jews. And I want you to know, he's writing to the people originally to the book, uh, the book of Ephesians is to the people of Ephesus. Ephesus was a cosmopolitan city, as we would refer to it. They had people from all over the world that would gather in this massive port city. You had Antolians, Egyptians, Romans, Syrians, Persians. These were all the Gentiles. And notice how they're referred to. They're called the uncircumcision. You see, the mark of the covenant, Genesis chapter 17, verses 9 through 14, God's people were marked out where the males were circumcised. This was a sign of the covenant. It identified them as God's people. They were following God's law. They were in covenant with God. 
But all the people that were not in covenant with God, you know how the Jews started to refer to them? As the uncircumcision. This was a term of derision. This was a slam. And he says, you were called the uncircumcision by those who were circumcised. The, these people, they were meant, the people of Israel were meant to be a blessing to the world. But I want you to know that just didn't happen. They started boasting and belittling. And they created this huge barrier and division. So great was the division between Jews and Gentiles and the animosity that was stirred between these two. It was uh, considered even unlawful for a Jewish woman to help a Gentile woman in her hour of labor. He's just like, can't help you. You're a Gentile. Sometimes they even refer to them as dogs. You would be considered ceremonially unclean if you had this great travesty happen in your life. That a Gentile came into your Jewish home. I want you to know the social alienation was great. But as great as that social alienation was, that great separation, it was all stemmed even from the greater separation, which is the spiritual alienation that he talks about in verse 12. Look at your former life. Verse 12, remember that you were without Christ. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. You need to know that if you do not have Jesus Christ, you're not trusting in him and Christ alone for salvation, for life, for hope, you are still in the domain of darkness. You are without life. Furthermore, you're without citizenship. Remember he said, he said, verse 12, you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. They enjoyed neither the rights nor the privileges that Israel had. They were excluded. There was a wall that was much stronger, much bigger than the Berlin Wall that existed, and that was this great gap between Gentile and Jew. And this was actually made literally known at the temple. Let me tell you what happened. In 20 BC, King Herod decided that he was going to rework the temple, and he was going to take it. Was, it was nice, but he was going to make it magnificent, so magnificent that it would become considered one of the wonders, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so he built a massive temple. And let me just kind of give you a little bit of a picture of what this looked like. So here you have the, you have the temple itself, the holy place and the holy of holies. You see that on this diagram? And then right next to that, this is where the priests were, the little vehicle priests, and this is where they operated right next to the temple. Past that, though, it was, it's called the Israelite courtyard, or this was where the men would come and worshiped, okay? And so this is the men of Israel. They would gather. They're pretty close to the temple. Then you see that great gate and that big barrier, that big wall. Past that, that's where the Jewish women, this is the women's courtyard. That's where they would come and worship. And then, though, you see that massive wall, okay? It looks like a fortress. And then you see all those steps down. You might have missed it there, but look down there in the bottom, down past all those steps, you see the Gentiles' courtyard. If you were a Gentile and you wanted to come and learn about the one true God, or you were coming to worship, that's where you belonged. Down there where all you could see was maybe a little bit of the top of the temple. And to show you just how deep the animosity was between Jew and Gentile, there were 13 inscriptions that were placed all around 
in the court of the Gentiles, we have uh, actually discovered through archaeology two of them. Josephus writes that this is, the Jewish historian Josephus writes that this is what was written, and we have evidence from two of these inscriptions that faced the Gentiles that were down there in the court of the Gentiles. And it simply said this, no foreigner is to enter within the forecourt and the barrier around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. Did the Gentiles get the message? Absolutely. There is a huge barrier and we're not wanted. You even so much as think to start climbing up those steps and we'll kill you. That's how deep the division went. They were without a holy citizenship if you were a Gentile. Furthermore, they were without covenants. You see that in verse 12? Not only were they excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, they were strangers to the covenants of promise. God had bound himself to agreements with his people, the people of Israel, that were meant to be a blessing to the world, to showcase to the world the awesomeness of God and to bring people into a saving knowledge of him, that didn't happen. And you see these covenants, like the Abrahamic covenant, the Palestinian covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, this all told Israel, listen, you have a not only a rich history, you have a certain future. You have a spiritual, national existence. You are going to have an eternal king that's going to come from the line of David. All of these promises are going to find their fulfillment in one who will be referred to as the Messiah. This is for you. But guess what? The Gentiles, they had none of that. And Paul says that was your former condition. You were with out hope. You couldn't expect things to get better. In fact, that's what he writes. He says, you're not only strangers of the covenants of promise, you were having no hope. Why? And you were without God in the world. See, the Gentiles had no savior, no home, no future, no hope. Do you know why? They didn't have God. Oh, yes. They had gods, little G-O-D-S, all sorts of deities, in fact, these statues and all the worship of all these temples, these man-made gods, oftentimes even demonically infused, they had captured the hearts, the attention, the wonders, and the worship of the masses. Well, they had their deities, but their gods couldn't save, no matter what they would do to appease them, oftentimes in ways that are hardly even imagined with the immorality or even the child sacrifice. They didn't have the one true God. They were in a state of absolute separation. But God steps in. He doesn't leave humanity in this great gulf and the abyss of darkness and sin. God intervenes with his Savior and he brings reconciliation. Take a look at verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus You who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Christ has brought near those who were far off. So the Gentiles, they were super far from God. They didn't even know what to do. God has brought them near. How? Through Christ's sacrifice. His shedding of his blood 
actually satisfied God's just wrath against sin. You see, God is a moral God. He's established morality in the universe. He is upholding justice in this universe. And so sin is an offense to his holiness. So God send his, sends his own son, the incarnation, the eternal son of God, enters into humanity and he becomes the just payment for sin. He fulfills all the law, so he's completely righteous, and he gives the, his righteousness to those who believe because he has become sin on their behalf, and he's brought those who are far off near through his blood. It's, it's the work of God. So strife and discord and enmity and bitterness and rage, I want you to know, this division that exists, it's because of sin. And God has addressed the matter of sin in the person and the work of Christ. You know, one of the, the early questions that existed in the early church, especially among the Jewish people that had be, placed their faith in Jesus, is like, hey, wait, do all these Gentiles, do they need to become Jews in order to really experience salvation? The answer Absolutely not. Why? Because Christ has accomplished all that is needed. Do you see that? Verse 13, he says right this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And friends, you see, Jesus' blood washes away the penalty of sin. It even washes away and dissolves the power of sin. You don't have to keep living in transgression and immorality and wickedness and greed. I want you to know, Christ has satisfied. He has paid it all. And one day, even the very presence of sin is going to be removed. All of this from the finished work of Jesus. Vodi Bakum, an American pastor, author, and educator, he serves as the Dean of Theology at the African Christian University in uh, Lusaka, Zambia. He said this, if God can reconcile Jews and Gentiles who have real differences and distinctions between them, he can certainly reconcile those who have arbitrary differences between them. The blood of Christ is the only thing that can reconcile us. It is blasphemous to add anything to that. It's not Christ plus these things, institutional change, these good works, good works. No, it is Christ alone. And he says it right. It's blasphemous to add anything to it. You see, Christ has brought near those who are far off, but let me tell you what else. Christ has brought peace to those who were divided. Christ has not only brought salvation to us, so we have freedom, forgiveness, life, Eternity, the hope of heaven, Christ's presence. But the gospel also is an announcement that Christ has brought peace to those who once were divided. Take a look as he starts explaining this in verse 14. He says, For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. He did it. Verse 15, how? By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. See, Christ not only gives us his peace, 
He actually is our peace. And so he says in verse 14, he did it. He broke down the wall of division and he did so in his body. He's the one that becomes the sacrifice and he is the one who provides peace. This was actually prophesied even 700 years prior to that. Remember in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6? This Messiah is going to be known as the Prince of, anybody know? Peace. And he provides it. This great enmity that exists between humanity and God and humanity with each other, all these ethnic divisions, they're gone. Reconciliation through who? Jesus Christ. Peace is found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And he says that he has taken away the, all the, the penalty of the law. Do you see that by verse 15? By abolishing in his flesh the enmity or the strife, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. You see, all of the commands, the, the bloody sacrifices, the ritual purity, the circumcision, I want you to know the things that were seen as essential for the worship of God, that's been all taken away. We have found our fulfillment in all those in Christ. We don't have to become Jews and follow Jewish law. What we need to do is focus on Christ who, and follow the law of Christ, which is love, and realize he's the one who has completely done away with this wall. It's like it says in Romans 10, 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You see, peace is found in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to pick this up because this is critically important. Do you see that in verse 15? Right at the end, he has made the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. In Greek, there are two predominant words for new. One is neos, and the other is kainos. Neos is new as in time, okay? It's like, it's like something that occurs in time. So, for instance, uh, neos would be like a new MacBook Pro, the latest and greatest, or the latest Ford truck. Not to create like truck envy or anything for you, but like, wouldn't that be cool? It's the latest in a line. Or the newest and the greatest and the best 747. It's like brand new. That's neos. But the other Greek word is kainos. And, and this word kainos is actually speaking of something that is new that has never existed before. So for instance, if neos is a new truck, kainos is like a Model T, the first mass-produced vehicle. That's like just had never existed before. If Neos is a new Boeing 747, well, I want you to know that Kynos is the, uh, the first airplane that was ever produced. Do you remember by the Wright brothers that actually flew? Not too far, but it did, and it made its first flight. That was something that's brand new. When he talks about something new, the new man, do you see that in verse 15? That new man had never existed before. So now you have Jews and Gentiles who have a common faith in Jesus Christ 
They now share meals together. They love one another. They serve one another. They show the world the power of Christ and the power of the gospel by how they live together. This had never occurred to anyone and it never been put on display. Unity wasn't through an institution. It wasn't through rules, regulations, and laws. Unity, true reconciliation among the races and people of every economic background, guess what? It all came in the person of Jesus Christ. This, friends, by the way, is the gospel of the kingdom. It's interesting that many Christians are quite familiar with, yep, the gospel, saved from my sins, Jesus did it all. Believe in Jesus. I want you to know, yes, that's the gospel, but that's only part of it. The gospel is not only that you're saved from sins, that God has brought redemption. He has also brought reconciliation among the races to those who will believe in Christ. If the world really wants God's answer to all these massive problems that continue to get stoked up, I'll tell you where it's found. It's found right here. It is the reconciliation provided by Christ. This is part of his masterpiece of what he's doing. Kelvin Cochran is an author, public speaker, former administrator of the United States Fire Administration. He actually was appointed by Obama to do this. He also was the former fire chief of the Atlanta Fire Department. He was, and and you'll probably recognize him or recognize his name. This was the guy that was fired as the chief, uh, fire chief in Atlanta He was fired by the city of Atlanta, not because of poor performance. In fact, this guy was stellar. He had risen from poverty, and he was a man of great integrity and had exceptional skills. You know how he got fired, don't you? Well, I'll just remind you. He he wrote a book for his church, and in that book, he talked about the biblical views of human sexuality, adultery, and homosexuality. And the city of Atlanta said, no, you don't. You just lost your job. You just crossed the line. Well, that's where we're going as a country. Get ready. If it can happen to Kelvin, it can happen to you. But of course, he was vindicated. Uh, He received a settlement of $1.2 million. He at present is the, the, works for the, as the vice president for the Alliance of Defending Freedom. Uh, About a month ago, Karina and I listened to a message that he gave, and I want to read to you what he said. We do not need a critical theory that creates division. We should not be in a cultural war. We have the inspired truth of Scripture. Critical theory will not foster justice or unity. Only the gospel can do this, right? Only the gospel can really provide unity. And so we see in verse 16, it says about Christ, and that he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity, the hostility, the strife, the shredding of each other, the treating of each other poorly, racism. I want you to know, that all goes away. Why? Because Jesus Christ has accomplished peace If the world wants reconciliation, racial peace, people living in harmony, you're going to have to do more than sing a few songs about it. Friends, you're going to have to believe God and believe the gospel. That is the only hope for humanity. 
And you're like, well, I don't, I don't really want that. There's got to be some other way. No, that is your pride speaking. You will not bow in humility before the living God. You think you know better. God says there's only one way, and it's my son. You want forgiveness? You want hope? You want reconciliation? Reconciliation? I'll tell you where you'll find it. You'll find it in my son, Jesus Christ. And so he says, verse 16, that he might reconcile them both in one body to God through, Christ, through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And then he goes on to just emphasize just how important that is. He has established peace, reconciliation, making the two whole, one, to bring two parties into peaceful relation. I mean, this can repair years, even centuries of damage. It is through the cross of Christ. And he says in verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who are far away. That's the Gentiles. And peace to those who were near. That is a quote from Isaiah 57, verse 19. Vodi Bakum said this, it was the unity that has been achieved through the blood of Christ and the grace of God and the presence and the power of his Holy Spirit uniting us in faith and giving us what we needed in order to know and understand and appreciate each other. It was sufficient. Know this, it is the gospel of grace. That is how God brings reconciliation to the human race. The gospel of grace, the only answer. And he goes on then to say in verse 18, and this is a powerful statement, for through him, speaking of Christ, we both, Jew and Gentile, have our access in one spirit to the Father. You see, the access to the Father comes through Christ, and it's the Spirit of God who gives life. Do you know, just like we saw in Ephesians chapter 1, where the, you have the grandeur of the Trinity on display, so you have it right here, again, in verse 18, bringing about this grand reconciliation. It's through Him, through Christ, we have access in one Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that animates this new man, this new body, so that we all have access to the Father. You see, in Christ, we have unity. That's not uniformity. We're not all the same, but unity is uniqueness working and living together, moving together. That's what Christ provides, where we can actually appreciate and celebrate one another and get to know each other and love one another. That's what God has always intended. And we have access to the Father. Now, you're like, well, I don't know if that's such a big deal. I want you to know when Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote these things, this is radical. For the Jews, they're like, man, access to God is pretty difficult. You got the Day of Atonement, our high priest walks in there, you know, and he's got a, we've got a rope on his leg in case something's not even quite right and God strikes him dead. We, we can get near that temple. And of course, if, you know, but like, that's, that's all we got. I mean, there's this grand curtain. There's this huge barrier. But then if you're a Gentile, like, you have no hope, right? Do you remember what happened when Jesus Christ uttered these words, the final words on the cross? It is finished. Do you know what happened? Matthew records it. That grand, huge tapestry, this massive curtain that existed in the temple, it was torn from the top to the bottom. Not the bottom up, not somebody pulling it up. It's God. Whoosh, indicating to the world 
Access to me has been accomplished through the work of my son. The moment he yielded his spirit, God opened the way. The wall has come down. It's all because of Christ. Friends, I tell you, there is no better news to this world than what Jesus Christ has done. Salvation from sin and salvation from these deep divisions that seemingly continue to foster so much hatred and despising of one another. God's answer is my son. Tony Evans, you'll recognize him, pastor at Oak Cliff Bible Church, a church of about 9,500. He's on the radio. He's on the TV. Uh, he's an author. I've had the privilege of actually meeting him on one occasion. I've got a ton of respect for this guy. Listen to what he has to say because he is actively at work trying to announce to this world the reconciliation that is found in Jesus Christ. Let me read you an excerpt of what he wrote. The reason we have racial, ethnic, gender, and class divisions in the church is because we have not fully and properly understood the cross Christians divided along illegitimate lines don't see themselves as part of the one new man. That is a huge part of the problem. We don't even know about the new man, so we don't even see it. He says this, All barriers based on factors such as race and gender are obliterated by the cross. This doesn't mean these distinctions don't exist. Instead, these legitimate distinctions are absorbed into something bigger. In terms of spiritual relationship and development, a white man has no advantage over a black man. A man has no spiritual advantage over a woman. We can embrace our differences with a common commitment to Christ because we are at peace with one another through our peace with God. We live in the good news of peace. If you do not see yourself belonging to this new race, this one new man, you will, not follow, you will follow the world's agenda. You will say things like, races don't mix, just like oil and water don't mix. But, you see, there is an exception. When you add an emulsifier, it allows two liquids to mix that normally don't. The atoning death of Jesus is God's emulsifier. To bring into harmony those who wouldn't otherwise mix. In the midst of hostility, Jesus not only brings peace, he is our peace. All the divisions, ethnically, upbringing, economic status, every other little earthly distinction where we always create all these divisions, I want you to know that all goes away when you put yourself in unity with Christ and you trust and believe in him. Vodi Bauckham says this, we do not have to achieve racial reconciliation. It already exists. It is a reality that we must walk in, but it has already been accomplished in Christ. And then he goes on to say, the bond of Christ is stronger than ethnic or family bonds. Blood might be thicker than water, but it's not stronger than the cross. While there are multiple ethnicities, there's just one human race. All of these divisions, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, friends, I want you to know where the unity is found. The unity is found in Christ. And know this, our churches, our churches are to showcase to the world the unifying power of the gospel. Did you know that? 
Our churches are to demonstrate and show the world the unifying power of Christ. And so I'd just like to ask, how are we doing? Honestly, how are we doing as a church? This is the gospel of grace. This is what God intended. This is written in the word. We pack these Bibles around all the time. How are we doing? Do we, um, are we harboring any pride, animosity? Are we like being governed by fear? Like, well, they look a little different to me and I don't know their name or I'm, I'm not sure they're dressed quite like me, so I'm just going to avoid them. How are we doing? Are we uh, finding ourselves where there's something going on in our heart that God needs to address so that fellowship continues to manifest what it means to be in Christ, to be believers of the gospel, to not only be freed from spiritual death, but be freed from divisions. Friends, I can tell you there's a lot of good things happening in our church. And friends, just even looking around, I mean, you could see it like, wow, here's like one place in the world where we're actually seeing people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, like we're coming together and we're growing. But more work is to be done. Friends, think of this. We're, we're all, no matter what your background is or what your ethnicity is, we who believe in Christ, we're going to live together in heaven, right? Forever. What God intends is that we, as the heavenly citizens, we live like it now. Come back next week. We're going to see exactly what God intends and what he means by that. But I want to give you a vision of the one new man. You see, remember that in, remember that in verse 15? The one new man. Let us ask God to cultivate in us in even deeper ways to have a heart to really love people. Not as people that are like you or people that, well, I know these people, but I don't know that. I want to love all people. Let's ask God to give us eyes to see people as he sees them. Ears to listen. Have you heard the stories of others? Somebody has come from Mexico or somebody has had just gone through all sorts of like racial segregation. Have you ever heard their story? Do you care? Um, let us ask God to create in us as a new man hands to help people. Like, I, I want to serve. Um, feet to walk with people. Walk alongside brother and sister. The bonds of Christ. And mouths. Mouths to encourage to thank people and to ask some really good questions. You see, friends, we need to go out of our way to display God's grace to people, especially those who are different from us. And you don't have to look very far. You're going to find it. But remember that God intends to put his gospel on display in the church. Gordon MacDonald writes about a time where he was speaking at one of our medical teaching colleges. There was a Nigerian woman, a doctor there, that came to talk with him after his talk. Uh, he, he met her, and lovely lady, very intelligent. Um, he, he said, you know, she introduced her, gave her an American name. He says, tell me, tell me, what's your African name? And she had this kind of melodic set of phrases, and he goes, okay, what does that mean? And she said, well, my name means child who takes away the anger. And he's like, whoa, 
how did you get a name like that? And she said, well, my, my parents, when, when they were young, they deeply loved one another, but my, their parents on both sides absolutely forbid that they would marry, wanted nothing to do with it. But they went ahead and got married, and I want you to know their families just completely shut them off. There was just no communication. We, they lived alienated. But then when I was conceived and when I was born, my grandparents came and visited. And when they held me, all the animosity and the anger, the barriers, they went away. And so my parents named me the child who takes away the anger. And I want you to know that would be a very fitting name for Jesus the child who was born to take away the anger so that we will live in harmony with one another. The gospel of grace is how God brings reconciliation to the human race. Believe the gospel. Now, we're going to have a time of communion, but before we do that, we're going to have a time of prayer. And I'm going to lead us, but let's have God examine our hearts Let's grow in grace. So if you want to just bow your heads and close your eyes, I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer.